Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of Inside AgriTurf. As industry and commerce starts to recover from the two-year hiatus caused by COVID-19, there are many knock-on challenges. Supply issues, certainly, but also recruiting new talent into this small but highly important support industry to food production and the care of the countryside. So I've invited a panel from different parts of the agriturf industry to discuss their experiences in recruiting new talent and perhaps the opportunities and obstacles. From the manufacturing sector, Richard Charles, who's the after-sales customer care and training manager UK and Ireland for the Agco Corporation. Now, Richard worked initially in dealerships, but in 2013, he joined Agco, initially working with a voucher brand and then moved to managing the customer care and training support team. And last September, became part of the Agco Global Customer Support Team and is based at the Agco Academy in Stoneley. Uh, so, Richard, welcome. Uh, d- just tell me briefly, are all the regions that you deal with experiencing recruitment problems? Yeah, certainly, Chris. Yeah, we've, uh, we've got a, what we call a talent pipeline project running uh we know where we are with the uk obviously because i've done quite a lot of work with that but uh, i'm starting to put feelers out in other regions such as south america and APA, uh, and we've all got the same type of issues really Good, yeah and secondly i'd like to welcome uh, simon holmes uh, the group service manager for the th white group and the agricultural and construction division now simon also started with the dealership spending much of his early career with platts harris in lincolnshire in 2002, he joined the CNH group, initially providing training on combines and worked for some years out of the CNH combine plant at Zedelgem in Belgium. He spent more than 17 years at CNH before the opportunity arose to return to a senior dealership role when he was appointed to the, his current position at TH White in May 2020. So, Simon, uh, you joined just in the middle of lockdown. That must have been good timing. It, it, it was a bit, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I, I also moved back from Belgium during that lockdown and came out on the last ferry out of Zbrugge. So it was a, it was a dynamic time that. Been a worse time to start, really. And the third member of our panel is is Jeremy Gibbs, who is uh, who's founded Forces Farming, an organisation he started in 2019 to provide a pathway for those leaving the services to take up a new career within agriculture. Uh, Jeremy started his working life on farms when he was involved in a farm and in farm and estate management. And in 2006, he was appointed as a training manager with John Deere, where he worked for almost 10 years, much of which was spent at the European headquarters at Manman. Today, he is, in, he is back in active farming alongside running forces farming, uh, which will learn about a little bit later uh, so jeremy um you also started just on the brink of uh, lockdown that must have been also good timing yeah you're exactly right chris it's been uh, it's been a challenging couple of years working to build this up through lockdown but um it's working well actually and it's amazing how many people are actually choosing to change career as a uh, result of the pandemic and last, uh, the fourth member of our panel, that will be well known to many in the industry, is uh, David Kirshner. Uh, David was educated at uh, Lackham College of Agriculture and spent nine years with a dealership and became de- technical director. He then joined Renault Agriculture, which is obviously now part of class, 
as after sales manager for the UK and Ireland, a post he held to until 2005. For the past 17 years, however, David has worked as an independent consultant to the industry, working closely with representative organisations and has been closely involved with linking the education sector with land-based engineering and has been coordinating representation from all sectors of the industry to establish a framework for the ever-changing apprenticeship schemes so that they meet the industry's needs. So, David, um, I guess you've seen it, done it, and you've metaphorically got quite a lot of T-shirts as well. Are you still as positive uh, about the opportunities that exist within agriculture for young people? My passion and positivity has never dimmed, Chris, and I don't think it ever will. It's an amazing industry which uh, offers anybody who cares to take part in it uh, limitless opportunities. Well, right. Look, our subject for today is recruiting new talent. What are the opportunities or indeed what are the obstacles? If I can have a view from the sharp end, firstly, uh, Simon, uh, what's your current experience in trying to take on new people? Um, very difficult. Very difficult indeed. I, I to, to find qualified staff is nearly impossible. Anyone that has got good qualifications has come from a, you know, working for a, a rival dealer. It's very, very difficult to attract those into our business, making that jump. It sounds easy, but when push comes to shove, right at the end, then the loyalties will go back to the the, the dealer that they've they've been with. So we have had some successes, but that's a difficult way to go. And I understand it because you'll have somebody who's really good at what they do on the products that they've been working on. And when they come to work for us with a, a rival manufacturer, um, then they've got to start again. Okay, it's not right again, but they're not at the top of the tree. So it, it's a difficult thing to do. So attracting qualified staff is, is hard. Attracting at the other end of the scale, the right apprentices is also difficult. There's a, a lot of youngsters that think that they're owed a job. And uh, we're not there to just take on anybody. I want to take on the best that I can find. And we will wait and choose the right people. And so that's very time consuming to do. And you've got to be very patient because some of those youngsters, they're 16. They don't they haven't had a lot of experiences, but it's just picking out who's actually going to to, uh, be any good. Interestingly, a lot of those youngsters coming in are not coming from farming backgrounds. A lot of the people that are applying are just thinking, well, this is a nice industry to come into. But I don't think they appreciate how complex it is and how difficult it is to to get into it if you don't understand a little bit of the the mechanics of it and certainly the way agriculture works so that's that's also difficult and also I would I would put into the mix that uh, in the last 18 months because there's a lot of people that want to change careers uh, recruiters start to come into the mix a lot more and those recruiters generally don't understand our business either they think they see a tractor and think that that tractor is like a gray ferguson and they're all going to be really simple to to repair and they're not i think they'll be very surprised to see how complex our machines are and what's required so i find the recruiters are then very time consuming because they will keep throwing cvs at you and they 
generally might have the, the 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 applicant might have driven a tractor when they were young, but they really don't have the, the skill level that we need to uh, bring them into our business. And when you also consider that we have to pay a recruitment fee to those recruiters as well, you're then paying a lot of money for somebody that doesn't fit what you need. Richard, you, you you have a much broader view through all your dealer network. Is um, Simon's story very much replicated through through your network? Completely, yeah, completely agree with everything that Simon said. It is an issue to find the right people. Um, it is the it is an issue to find the right people for our own uh, organisation in technical support or whether it be training. I do believe that the industry needs to do more, though, and some of the, the points that Simon raised can also become a selling point to drag people into the industry. The industry is not about basic tractors anymore. It is highly technologically advanced, and this should be attractive to uh, the next generation coming through who potentially end up working at Jaguar Land Rover or somewhere like that. We really need to start broadening, it, broadening our horizons, and I think we are quite insular as an industry. And we actually only ever preach to the converted. We're only ever selling the industry to people that are already linked to it or are already within the industry. And we've got to start working harder to reach these wider people. Hence, my dear colleague, Jeremy, is sat next to me. <laughs> well, yeah, can I bring Jeremy in here? I mean, uh, Jeremy, you have experience uh, within the industry already with, with John Deere. Uh, but tell me, what's the procedure with a serviceman leaving the forces and looking for a new career? I mean, they've obviously they've got a huge choice out there. Uh, so where do you come in? How, how do you handle their, their potential interest? Yeah, so the idea really is when someone decides to leave, that's either through, let's say, decisions they've made themselves, they, they're at the right age to move into a new career as a young person, should we say? So with the average age of a service leaver being 29, they've still got quite a long career ahead of them. So then they start to explore what potential opportunities there are out there. And I'll be honest, from my feedback from the people I'm talking to, 90% of the time it's word of mouth. They will talk to their friends and see what they're doing, what they've done, what they fitted in. And then really, it's that classic one of social media these days, you know, a handheld device is everyone's connection to the world. So through different um, apps and, and, and networks and things like that, people will start to explore what opportunities are available to them. And then once they decide on a direction, um, let's say in this case, forces farming, then really the process starts of, well, are you looking at an education path while you're still serving, in which case it might be two years doing a course or doing some experience placement, or if they've already left, then it might be a case of simply linking them up to, you know, someone that's looking for an engineer in that case. That's really the two routes that I find. It's either someone planning their leave and they're planning what they're going to do next, or it's someone that's already come out and they're looking just to find their next step or, or a door open into an agricultural job. And are they looking for a career for life in a way, because they've already had many of them a career, a career in the armed forces. Are they looking for something that will uh, give them an opportunity to, to, to go up the scale and, and so on? Yeah, definitely. That, that element of career progression, or even just as simply as breaking it down into almost six-month chunks for the first three years, maybe if someone just wants to work on a farm, 
that's the one thing I always say to employers is you're, you're taking someone into your organization now who's been basically brought through a process of you do that for that long and then you move on to this and then you do that for another period you move on to that to bring them into an environment where it's a case of right there you go that's the job go you know you do have to then really almost adjust a little bit of the management to make sure that they're on the right path they're guiding themselves or they're um, taking the training opportunities that are there basically I, I seem to remember one of the most memorable quotes I had on a podcast uh, came from one of your, shall I say, clients, Will Foster, yeah. um, who went out on work experience um, from the army. And uh, during his work experience, he said he was bowled over by the glamour and glitz of the agricultural machinery industry, which I don't think I've ever heard it described as such. But uh, there we go. At least that was his honest opinion of that at the time. David, um, what feedback are you getting from, uh, you know, apprentices particularly and and uh, apprentice interest and so on? I mean, the the problem is, Chris, is nothing happens without people. And we're finding it really difficult in line with all engineering industries to attract people into our sector. I, I mean, I can echo everything that's been said. Everybody I know or speak to. They're always looking for technicians and finding it very difficult to actually find them. We need people. As an industry, I think we're second to none actually training people once we have them. And we can't possibly expect people to walk off the street and have the skills and knowledge that we require. But as an industry, we can nurture them. We can offer them opportunities and really it's the individual's aspirations that actually limit their progress. The, the opportunities are limitless. With all of you, really, how would you summarise the uh, selling points of being an agricultural engineer or working in the land-based engineering sector? Um, we're talking particularly, I think, about agricultural engineering here. Jeremy, how do you sell it to your, to, to your clients? That's good. I, it's a good question, Chris. The, the challenge is, and this is one thing I always say from forces farming perspective, is we, we don't paint the industry with like rose-tinted spectacles. There's no, there's no point saying to someone, you can come and earn 45 grand as a technician and you'll get training, you get a van and you get a tool allowance, et cetera, et cetera. You, you've got to balance it with, you know, there's elements of 12, 15, 18-hour days and you'll get angry customers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's emphasizing the point, and I had this conversation earlier today, that you as an agricultural engineer, you're number one, an extended member of the farm team because you're a trusted asset. And number two, you are probably the key to the dealer relationship with that customer because 90% of the time, the technician is seeing the customer more than the salesman potentially. So I I sort of explain it to people that this, this is where you fit in the process of, or the, the, let's say the structure of a dealership, you're not just out swinging spanners and moving machines and fixing stuff. You are part of the whole process of managing that customer relationship. And when you get people to understand that agriculture and the agricultural engineering industry is really built on trust, people start to adhere and, and understand and, and yeah, work into it to, to, to see those key selling points that they've, they've uh, identified. And, and Simon, how do you how do you sell um, a career at TH White in in specifically and agricultural engineering in in general? 
Well, I, I, I think with us that, that we know, echoing what, what um, Jeremy said, our technicians are the ones that are going to sell the next piece of machinery. So there's a lot of trust there between the, the technicians and our, and our customers. So we, we, we certainly recognise uh, the importance of our technicians within our business. Echoing what David said about training and development, it's something that we're passionate about. Um, we do put a lot of people on a lot of courses because we want them to be at the cutting edge of what they're doing. They come over a lot more confident that way. The diverse uh, amount of work that there is. So, you know, you can become a specialist in one item of machinery, but we don't want to do that, really. We want to be able to be working on lots of different types of machinery, and there's, there's lots of opportunities there. Um, opportunities to work autonomously as well so you know you're not always going to be there and having somebody over your shoulder telling you what to do if you're good at your job you can go out and build those relationships with customers and i Um, guess i guess also simon that it's important that you lay out quite clearly the benefits of working for th white in in your case exactly and we we've done since i've been there we've 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 done some initiatives to to uh to show that as well you know with quite a lot of different things that we've done um i've certainly uh recognized that maybe not all of the manufacturer training is actually uh suiting our needs so i've gone and found separate courses and started to do those and they've been received really well because I know what, what the guys need and I'm making sure that we're doing it in the right way. Um, so we will certainly be doing more of that. And that's something else that just makes us more, more attractive, really. Uh, and Richard, is it part of your role to help dealers uh, sell agricultural engineering or sell, sell their company to prospective employees? It's it's something that I've undertaken, Chris. Uh, it isn't necessarily, but because I'm passionate about agricultural engineering, uh, and I echo what Simon says that uh, a lot of the manufacturer training isn't necessarily fit. Uh, what we've done, or what we're doing here, because we're leading it, is is to really make it an attractive career, and also make the career path within. Uh, our dealers an attractive career and the training path goes with that type of career path so we're restructuring all of our training courses to really develop proper levels so you can so jeremy can take someone from the military and he can show him a clear career path an education plan of of what they will do in the next three four five six seven years of their career within an agco dealer Um, And the other aspect of it is, and if we can really expand on it, is if we can really support our dealers in recruiting apprentices, whether it be apprentices or already skilled people, then we can actually start to recruit from within our own network for our own teams within Agco to really enhance that career path for someone. You go and work for a dealer for 20 years, the the manufacturers helped the dealer recruit and fill up their, their, their vacancies throughout those periods but then we then take the some of the best cream off the crop uh to to come and work at agco as technical trainers or as um technical support specialists to really show the full career path that is a potential as an agricultural engineer um through a dealer i just just happened to see 
Yeah, I happened to see an advert from one of your dealers. It was Pews, actually, who very much linked the opportunities within their company with your apprenticeship scheme. So I think and that was very, uh, very prominent on, on social media and also on, on the web. Um, David, um, this, this career path is important, isn't it? Um, but I also hear that, that unlikely as it might seem, pay and condition or pay is not necessarily the, the, the biggest hook. Would you agree to that? Absolutely. It's, I think it's job satisfaction. I, I was in the industry for 45 years plus and never was I driven by the money. It was the satisfaction, the challenge, the, the constant um, growth of technology. It, it was always something new. So it's not all about money. Obviously, it's, money is important, but it's not the whole factor. And different things motivate different people. For me, it's certainly not about the money. It's about the job satisfaction, particularly if you're customer facing. If, if you're out supporting or repairing a machine that's broken down in a field, the satisfaction of actually overcoming the problem and seeing the machine back in work, you can't really put a value on that. And, and on all that, I've done a number of podcasts um, talking about diversity in the industry. Uh, we've always assumed that we are a white male middle class industry, um, but we are seeing more interest from, for instance, female technicians. I know, Richard, you've been quite active in this in, in, in terms of trying to uh, gender. And in fact, there's been some very, very enthusiastic uh, people coming through into the industry and hope they will become role models in time. Correct. Yeah, definitely. The, the industry needs to do more. We are not quite diverse enough, uh, but we definitely need to do more. There is loads of opportunities for different people, different classes, different uh, different backgrounds. And uh, we just we just need to do more. We, As I said earlier, we are just preaching to the converted permanently where we really need to broaden our horizons because there is a hugely untapped resource out there that we're just never reaching. Yeah, um, this is this is what we're trying to change, certainly within Agco. Indeed, which kind of brings us on to the to, to the next and very related uh, uh, issue of is the industry at large doing enough to improve awareness uh, of the ag tech industry? I seem to recall because around at the time it was actually the last Smithfield show in two thousand and four when the industry did come together and it managed to raise the best part of £100,000 for what it called the Industry Careers Project, which was launched by Princess Anne at uh, Smithfield Show. But that was, you know, nearly 20 years ago now. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be uh, the industry impetus. There is the LeTech committee, but um, having looked at some of the Facebook postings and Twitter postings, there doesn't seem to be much consistency of of message going out there so can i come back to you richard is and you can speak from a manufacturer's point of view and obviously you can put over the agco uh, take on things but we are talking about uh, increasing awareness across the board um, of opportunities within the industry do you think uh, the industry is doing enough we the industry are doing a lot of siloed projects so a lot of the industry bodies or press are always trying to do something but it's very siloed because we are such a competitive industry as well. A small industry in, in comparison to automotive, but quite still a very competitive industry. So there's a lot of silo projects going on. So 
I shouldn't say that we're not doing enough because there are pockets that are doing loads, but I don't think we're doing enough collectively, no. Uh, I think there are some collective industry bodies that should pull together and really do something for the industry as a whole instead of just siloed certain projects. And one of those person, people who would make use of that, of course, is, is um, Jeremy. Jeremy, do you feel that you've got enough tools at your disposal to be able to tell people uh, about the industry? No, it's a good question, Chris, because I, um, you know, I would be honest and say I would struggle if someone said to me, I, you know, what does an agricultural engineer do? It's very much a discussion between me and that person or an email, an explanation, that kind of thing. But there's no generic, you know, career path video of an ag, you know, not even a 30 second advert of a smiling technician, you know, happy customer shaking hands. We, as, as Richard said, you know, we, we preach to, to ourselves, you know, we, we don't seem to be able to expand that to a wider amount of people. Now, whether that's the responsibility of the industry bodies, I don't know, but but yeah, you know, I I have certainly had limited, let's say, positive feedback on trying to engage various people in promotion, and even a you know generic, let's say, career path or sorry, you know, experience acknowledgement. So if I get an engineer from the armed forces come to me and says, "Well, I'm level three, I've got no way of moving them into the industry at the moment at that level. It, you know, it, the default is they go in as a sort of an apprentice level and have to work their way up, which is a challenge to get people in there because there's not that sort of opportunity at their right level, shall we say. So, no, I mean, again, you know, whether it's engaging in different age groups or different sectors or that kind of thing, I'm not sure, or even more specific local advertising and local promotion, shall we say. I think it's fair to say as well, Chris, that it's not just us as an industry either. I don't think other industries really have a uh, one-way fixes all, if you know what I mean. So we're not alone. And, and going back, Simon, I guess um, during your days in dealerships, you would have probably found the same issues um, uh, and uh, then moving into a manufacturer and then back into a dealership setting. We'll use the word setting because everybody else does these days. Are, are you find that there is enough industry information out there? No, I don't, I don't think there is. I, I, th- I also think that agriculture gets some bad press with the environmental issues. It's not a glamorous industry. Nobody's really, you know, you, you don't really see anybody coming over and, and saying, well, this is a, a, a real fantastic industry to be in. It just looks like a polluter. And because of that, I don't think that we will ever really attract lots of people from outside of the industry into it. You've really got to have an interest in agriculture for it to work for us. You know, I am just listening to to Jeremy um, bringing people in from the armed forces. I've I've looked at that. We have got a, a, a one technician who's come from from the armed forces, and he's great and he's really enthusiastic. But he will tell you himself he struggles because he doesn't understand the industry enough, and so that's going to be a challenge. It is a big learning curve, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. And and I just what Richard had said about going back to apprenticeships. That's what I've had to do for this this technician is to put him on a level three apprenticeship, just so that he gets that exposure and he feels confident about the machines that we're asking him to work on. So bringing people from outside of the industry 
that is also a challenge is getting them to actually understand it enough to be able to 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 go and do a good job it's a good point you mentioned just to add to that quickly chris what simon mentioned there is that level of experience and understanding the farming environment you know it sounds silly but there's almost the natural link up between the shortage of harvest workers and saying look you know go and do a harvest for two months and then come into the engineering and that's that to me is the approach that's needed in the future is almost connecting up with you want to be an engineer but first off let's start by stroking cows and chasing sheep or something do you know what i mean or going and doing a bit of plowing or harrowing or drilling or harvesting you've got to get that hook of oh this is you know this is a cool industry before you potentially think about becoming an engineer and simon do you as a matter of course um, offer people a taster employment for a year or something before they commit themselves no i we've not really done that i guess that would depend on the person that that came through i think that we 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 invest quite a lot of time in in new employees and to do that for a year that would be a something completely new and out the box for us to do not say that's not a good idea um but i've not really come across in through going through the interview process, I've not really come across people where I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to give you a go. I gave I gave the the um, the, the ex army guy a go now, and I'm I'm confident that that one's going to work. But you've got to pick the right people when you do that because we don't have the time to 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 devote to to people in that way. So I really like Jeremy's idea of you've got to go and drive a combine or spend some time on a farm or in that environment with a contractor before you come into that industry. That's how you make that step. I think that's a really, really good idea. And that's very much part of your process, isn't it, Jeremy, to to make sure that people do like it before they commit themselves and and, and make absolutely sure that uh, that they would feel comfortable within that environment. Yeah, exactly, Chris. And this is what we're working to. And you know, through COVID, it's been a challenge, but the idea, the, the end goal is that horses farming, being a farming company, is we have a site where people can come and do exactly that. You know, you can come and graze your knuckles on bolts and spanners and things like that and bang your head when you're working on a combine. Because if, if that's not, you know, if that gets you out of the industry within half a day, then, you know, there's no point going and signing up to a dealer for three, six months or whatever and, and then leaving sort of thing. The, that's the other big challenge that I've got is to make sure that once someone's hired, it's a kind of ongoing process. And that's the big benefit of the ex-military community is they bond, they bond together. You put, put three of them in a room together with, you know, a group of other people and you'll find that those three will end up chatting and you get that bond. So as, as you start to bring ex-military into an organisation, you've got a sort of self-supportive unit within that network. Yeah, very, very interesting, David. Uh, you, you you do a little work work with Lee Tech, and this is, um, I mean, uh, I think the problem is that um, we referenced earlier on the existence of a fund earlier on, and there doesn't seem to be a fund very much. And there's been a lot of talk over the years about whether the the industry should levy sales and what what on earth it should do uh, to actually create some sort of budget to uh, promote the industry, but it's never really come about. But it does strike me that. There, and I see stories of absolutely wonderful technicians who are full of vim and vigor and 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 ambition. I, behind the scenes, it's already happening, Chris. So, good. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to give details, but it, believe you me, it is happening. 
the, the problem is, is that everybody's very busy. They have their own commercial challenges to, to deal with. The funding is definitely an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody is working away in their own silo, as Richard says, and there's no sort of joined up industry approach. But trust me, as an industry, the problems are well known and solutions are being sought. That obviously won't happen quick, quickly enough. And I must stress that we are not alone in this in this challenge. All no. the engineering industries have got exactly the same problem. Well, look, uh, lastly, I'd like to come on to this whole question of once we do get uh, young employees, uh, the question of training, apprenticeships, um, and on the horizon is the, the, is the new T-levels. T um, if I could just come back to you, David, uh, again, if I might, um, I note that you had a meeting of a number of dealers recently to uh, discuss apprenticeships and where they're happy with them and, and uh, what was right and what was wrong. Was there any general outcome from that meeting? Yeah, there was. I mean, it was a fact-finding session, really. We are just about to start the review of the apprenticeships. Our apprenticeship has been in place now for over three years. Um, We wrote into the apprenticeship standards that they should be reviewed after three years. We're gathering information on what's working and what isn't, what's required, what's missing, uh, and any new approaches that we need to take to accommodate what's happening, the changes in the industry and certainly recruitment. And one of the outcomes is that within the apprenticeship and to a certain extent within the T-level qualification, we are actually going to introduce elements where um, apprentices and trainees will learn about crop soil conditions so that they can relate machines to crops and how they interact between one another. So that will be a help certainly if we have people who are migrating from other industries or from the forces, if they take an apprenticeship, and of course they can, no matter what age they are, they can get that top up and also a background into the crops that they'll be dealing with and soil conditions and applications. We're also very conscious that we want to make the apprenticeship much, much broader in its delivery. A lot of training providers just make it about tractors and land-based engineering is so much broader than that. There, There is a lot of work going on. The new apprenticeship, it will change slightly in the way it looks, but the foundation, the underpinning knowledge will still be there. And and for me, the apprenticeship, we, I think expectations of industry are really very, very high uh, and perhaps too high. You can't take somebody out of school and put them into a T-level, which is for 16 to 19-year-olds, and expect them to come out as master technicians. Just as you can't take somebody out of school, put them into an apprenticeship and expect them to be master technicians. They have to develop. Unfortunately, there there is an expectation within certain sectors of industry where people expect apprentices to come out, be fully fledged and totally proficient. And of course, that doesn't happen. And Simon, from your perspective, um, is the apprenticeship uh, set up and schemes available uh, suitable for your purpose? Yes, they are. Uh, It's one of the areas that I've really started to focus on now. We have around 12 apprentices um, across our agricultural group at the moment. I will be recruiting some more soon. Um, 
I don't think that the training providers provide us with exactly what we need. There's quite a lot of reliance on us to do a lot of the training. And unfortunately, some of that training needs to be done in a classroom. And we're not set up to do that. One of the, I was on that, that, uh, that call with, with David. One of the things that I learned on that was that, that the training providers are providing a service to us. And therefore, I now go back and ask those providers, are you providing me with value for money? And I've started to push them a lot more now. And now we start to see more results because the apprentices start to talk to me more. I get feedback from them when they're going on their, their blocks during the blocks and afterwards, I want to know what was good, what was bad, what could they have done differently? And I'm feeding that back to those suppliers. And I'm also making sure that they're, they're monitoring our uh, apprentices in the right way. So I want to see that, that when they put a piece of work in, that it's marked and it's at the right level before we move on to the next one and not just leaving everything to the last minute and then as having to review it again. So I've very much started to drive what happens with our apprentices and that is also helping with retention because i've got quite a bond now with our apprentices they all all got my number they they can all ring me whenever they like and i'll coach them whatever they're doing whether they're at college or or out in the field um and that really does help with retention of them we you know we we keep all of our apprentices since i've been working for th whites we, we've kept them all and uh, long may that continue. They're doing a great job, and I'm all proud of every one of them. And and that reinforces once again that it is a people business, and there's a people contact and the communication business. So, Richard, what's what's your view on the apprenticeships and the training provision at the moment? Yeah, so we've done a full review of our scheme uh, and the colleges that we were affiliated with. Uh, we're going to expand our scheme and release a, a fairly new scheme at the end of Feb. But basically what we've done is is exactly what Simon says. We need to take ownership of our apprentices and we need to uh, really take responsibility of what they're learning. But we're doing it from a manufacturer point of view. So on behalf of our dealers, we will ensure that the affiliated colleges that we, we are twinned with have the right resources. We're not trying to change what David's doing. Uh, all we'll do is bolt in resources that they can then deliver the tasks and standards accordingly, but with ADCO resources. Uh, so then they come back to the dealership fit for purpose, ultimately. And, and we think this is the way forward. The colleges will still need to teach them about the other implements that ADCO don't make, ultimately. They still need that underpinning knowledge of implements. But we can still provide a lot more resources. So we're doing heavy investment within the colleges. I think we've always been in a bit of a blame culture that, well, it's the college's fault. They're not delivering what we need them to deliver. As a manufacturer, I believe that we need to take as much responsibility as the colleges and we need to work together with these further education uh, colleges to, to really ensure that the apprentice goes back to the dealer, goes back to Simon or any of the dealers, uh, fit for purpose. And they will not be like David said, you're not a master technician at the end of three year apprenticeship. You should never expect to be and nor should the dealer expect them to be that. That is the next stage of when they come to us as ICO training and they join that career path and end up being a master tech in the next five years of their sort of uh, career. Sure. And, 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 and can, I, can I just add a point here, Chris? Yeah, of course. I think what we have to learn as an industry, I mean, it's absolutely great to hear Simon and the way he's actually nurturing his apprentices. 
I think as an industry, we need to learn how to mentor, pe mentor people in the workplace. And it doesn't matter if they're a migrant into our uh, industry or an apprentice or an, uh, an improver, we must learn how to mentor people. And, and perhaps in the past, we haven't actually met the requirement. And Jeremy, one of the issues, obviously, with people coming through your offices, shall we say, is that they will be mature. They, they will not fit necessarily into an apprenticeship scheme. Is, is this an issue at all? Yeah, for me, for me, it is, Chris, because I so, you know, behind generally, let's say the, the person leaving the armed forces, you will have a spouse and potentially two children. That's where the idea of going into any sort of form of higher education full time is is really a no go. Um, so the idea of apprenticeships, and this is where you know part of the work I'm doing is talking with employers or potential employers about apprenticeships. You know the the government support that's available for apprenticeships, as you said earlier, it doesn't matter if they're 16 or 26. You know you can still have an apprentice. But what's interesting is their perspective. Of becoming an apprentice it's that kind of term well i'm not I, I don't want to be an apprentice at 35 years old well that's just a word you know what i mean so it's also promoting something as a retraining engineer moving into the industry that we can say that's what you are you're not an apprentice you're not a you know an advanced technician but you're coming in at this level so um, well look um that that's so fascinating can i can i thank you all for your participation we've covered quite a lot of ground in a shorter space of time we won't have got it all right right and we will continue to to learn and act uh, hopefully so um uh, david and and simon and jeremy and and richard can i can i thank you all very much indeed and funnily enough if i might just add uh, one of the next uh, sessions of this agriturf talk I'm going to do is is actually called "Is the industry doing enough to present its uh, environmental credentials?" Because a lot of a lot of the uh, young people who are thinking of coming into this industry are very environmentally aware these days and all are ask, asking questions. And it was quite rightly said that um, we have a little bit of an image problem in that that area so uh, i think that's something that the industry can perhaps look at quite seriously to see how it presents itself but look can i thank you all very much indeed it's been absolutely fascinating and, and and thank you again so thank you for joining me for this opening episode of season three of inside agriturf uh, there is more on the horizon tackling the issues of the day Notes and links to the various organisations featured in this episode will be on the show notes that accompany this podcast. So once again, thank you. I'm Chris Biddle and this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>